invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Matthew's Gospel, actually, more accurately, the Gospel according to Matthew. We're currently in a series called Following Jesus, and we've learned that Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, has more of the teaching of Jesus in it than the other Gospels. And sometimes it's called the teaching gospel. We've also learned Matthew built his gospel around five sermons that Jesus gave. These may be composite, but Matthew built his, sermon, his, his gospel around these five discourses, we call it. One New Testament scholar, Michael Wilkins, says Matthew is the perfect tutorial on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This weekend, we are taking up the fifth sermon been a little intimidating in this series, preaching Jesus' sermons. Just, you know, you got this kind of intimidation factor of getting it wrong. (laughs) And so, this one's one of the longest. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest. This one, secondly, a long sermon. And so, we're going to dive in this morning, and he's answering a couple questions in this message. It's kind of prompted. He made a statement, his disciples had asked two questions, and then he answers them, and that becomes his sermon. The disciples ask questions about the temple, when will it be destroyed, and the future of it, and secondly, about the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age, which in their mind may have been linked. We're not sure if it was linked in their mind, but these are the two questions that launched Jesus into this discourse. And so He addresses these, I've entitled this message, Who Will Be Ready to Meet God? That's what Jesus is talking about this morning. And it's good for all of us, whether we're Christians or not. Some of us here know Christ and we're born again. Some of us here this morning don't know Christ and we're not born again. Either way, this is a great sermon to take some personal reflection and think about, am I ready to meet God? Because the reality is, some of us in this auditorium right now will likely not be on this planet one year from today. And so, are you ready to meet God? Am I ready to meet God? We have a lot of ground to cover. It's going to feel a little bit like going to seminary. I have to do that once in a while. And especially chapter 24 in particular has a lot of moving parts. It's not an easy chapter. It's a very hope-filled chapter. The mega themes, the meta narratives, very clear. But there's a lot of moving parts in chapter 24. There's a number of different approaches. And it requires some careful attention and humility as we approach it. With that caveat... I want to dive in. Jesus is addressing three major themes in what we call chapter 24 and chapter 25. Remember, these weren't chapters back then. This didn't come around until the medieval times, putting chapters to this. It's helpful, but this wasn't divided up by chapters and verses. This was all one big sermon back then. And there's at least three meta-themes going on here. First, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That takes up a big chunk of chapter 24. Then secondly, the coming of the Son of Man, and then thirdly, the final judgment. So, let's dive in. I'm going to be moving at a fairly crisp pace this morning. I hope you have your fingers ready to go. I think you'll find this very encouraging, but we do have a number of things we've got to address. So, let's dive in. The temple in Jerusalem, maybe talk about that for a minute. This is a source of national pride for the Jewish people, one of the largest physical structures in the entire region. I mean, it's probably second or third only to the pyramids and the Sphinx in Egypt. This would have been one of the wonders of the world at that time, back then. Originally built under King Solomon, then destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt under Zerubbabel, and then eventually, interestingly, 
rebuilt and expanded by King Herod the Great. Now, there's at least six King Herods in the New Testament, so you've got to be careful with which King Herod. This is King Herod the Great. This is the nasty, brutal dude who had all the babies in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem killed. And there, there are political reasons why he had the temple expanded and developed further. And if you go there today, if you see part of the retaining wall called the Western Wall, that's part of what he had done. So that's the temple. It is a source of huge pride. I mean, in a, as, if, if you're an American, think a little bit of your emotional uh, attachment of the emotions you would have, say, around something like uh, uh, Mount Rushmore, the Statue of Liberty, or the White House, or some historic monument. Even something as insignificant, perhaps, as the Twin Towers, when, if you were alive, when those were taken down. Just the sense of betrayal you would feel that your identity is to some degree caught up in national monuments like this. And for the temple, this was like it for the Jewish people. And here Jesus makes a declaration, starting in verse 1, as we start in chapter 24, that one day, coming soon, the temple is going to be destroyed. So imagine I come up here this morning and tell you that in just a couple of years, the church is going to be obliterated and there won't be one brick left on another. I'd probably have your attention. You're going to be wondering, is this guy true prophet, false prophet? But that's a disturbing prophecy. So, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple. And I'm going to show a couple of photographs in just a second to set the groundwork here. But he left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So this is what would be on what we would call Temple Mount today, roughly 35, 40 acres, about size of 25 football fields. It's a large, flat area right in central Jerusalem. He answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I tell you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, that's shock preaching <laughs> at its best. He certainly had their attention uh, at, at that point. And by the way, it's not an accident that this whole thing took place over on Mount of Olives. That's across from it the, because they left the temple grounds and they'd gone over to the Mount of Olives, which crossed the way. That's where this took place, this conversation. That's not an accident. Mount of Olives plays a huge part in the life of Jesus. It's where he's going to return one day. And the uh, Mount of Olives sits directly across the ravine. Let me show you just a couple photographs, give you a little context. Some of you have been to Israel. Some of, a lot of you have not. You've seen photographs. But that is a picture of the Mount of Olives. Now, it looks like a Mount of Tombs. And that's because today it is largely a Mount of Tombs, not a Mount of Olives anymore. There's over 100,000 Jewish tombs over there today. But originally that was a Mount of Olive Trees. I took that photograph from Temple Mount. So you could. So I was close, actually I'm not at Temple Mount there, I was close to Temple Mount there. So yeah, it's roughly the distance uh, from Temple Mount over. This is a shot I took further back. So you can see they started the conversation at Temple Mount and then it says they moved over to the Mount of Olives and then they were looking back over at Temple Mount as Jesus begins this sermon. So it gives you some context. There's a few hundred yards there looking over at this thing. Next photograph is a roughly where they would have been, approximately. I took this, I'm on the Mount of Olives taking this picture back towards the famous Dome of the Rock, one of the most famous Islamic uh, uh, sites in the world. Uh, the Dome was built in 691, 
And it's today, I mean, the tradition is it was built over the place, the exact place of the Holy of Holies. We don't know that for sure, but that's Temple Mount over there. So roughly, this would have been the view of Jesus and his disciples, a few more olive trees there, but they would have been looking over at Temple Mount at the temple. Next photograph, I did not take, <laughs> I wasn't bungee jumping or hang gliding, um, this is an aerial view to show you the size roughly of, that's Temple Mount and roughly where the temple would have sat. And then the last photograph here is just close up. This is right in Temple Square. And it's interesting when you go to Israel, sometimes you can get in to Temple Square and Temple Mount, sometimes you can't, sometimes we've been kicked off, <laughs> we've been denied entrance, sometimes we can get on, it just depends, it's, uh, it's a little volatile. But there we are right on it. And this is the temple probably set pretty close where you see the dome structure, Dome of the Rock. And this is what they would have been looking at. So that gives you a little context. It leads to a Q&A session, okay? That brings us to verse 3. I hope you're ready. Young people, kids, hope you're ready. This is worth it. we got a lot of moving parts, but this is an encouraging, hope-filled message about what's to come. And it's a reminder Jesus is Lord of history because he is painting us an incredible picture of what's to come in the near and distant future as we walk through this. All right, 24, verse 3. As they sat on the Mount of Olives, so they're looking over at Temple Mount, and Jesus has just said that whole thing, you know, this is all going to be obliterated. His disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And, And as I said up front, likely in the disciples' thinking and their paradigm, all of these things would have been combined. If the temple's destroyed, in their minds, probably, I don't know, we don't know for sure, but probably that meant the end of the world, the end of the age. So in their mind, these things probably are linked. Jesus answers the first question by referring to the coming destruction that's going to shake Jerusalem. Now, he is making this prediction roughly 30 A.D., Romans started this invasion around 66 A.D. in Caesarea, but by 70 A.D. they had moved in and obliterated Judea and Jerusalem and the temple. And it was a total destruction. They'd had it with Jewish revolt and in their minds with Jewish rebellion. Rome put a premium price, as tyrannical governments do, on peace, and they wanted peace. And they came in finally and they put an end to all of it and they destroyed the temple, and they obliterated. Josephus, first century Jewish historian, writes about the destruction and said it was brutal. In fact, he says the Romans ran out of crosses, that they crucified so many people, that it was literally a bloodbath. Now, that picks up the text. Jesus is going to describe what's ahead as we dive in, verses 4. I'm going to read verse 4 to 9 to begin with. So, keep that in mind for just a minute. I'm going to turn to Luke's version in just a second, by the way, where Luke makes it even more explicit that Jesus was clearly referring to the coming Roman invasion. Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. They will lead many astray. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations 
for my name's sake. He continues, drop down to verse 15 for a second, and he's going to link this coming invasion to a prophecy from the prophet Daniel here. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. I want you to turn with me for a minute over to Luke chapter 21. This is Luke's version of the same sermon. The sermon shows up, this what we call the Olivet Discourse, it's kind of an obtuse name for it, but what we call this sermon, the Olivet Sermon, is reported in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not reported in John, but it is in these other three. And Matthew's is the longest version, but Luke gives us a version, and it pretty much follows Matthew's, except Luke fills out a little bit more, starting in verse 20, Luke 21, verse 20 to 24. I want to point out a couple of things in your text here. Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 24, Luke is going to, because uh, Matthew doesn't mention Rome per se, he doesn't even mention an army. We know that's what he's talking about, but Luke tells us explicitly that's what's going on. When you see the Jerusalem, verse 20, surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea, now you're going to notice very familiar wording here, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infant in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against His people. And again, look at verse 24, He's going to mention Jerusalem being trampled on. This will, they will fall by the edge of the sword, obviously this is a military invasion, and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until all the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, go back to Matthew 24. So, Luke specifically links what Jesus is talking about to the coming Roman invasion in just a few decades, reminding us again, Jesus is Lord of history. He's telling them exactly what's going to take place. Notice verse 22 in Matthew 24, interesting. For the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. Interesting that God is always looking out. The lesson here, He is protecting and preserving His people. Even in times of death, He is protecting and preserving His people. Now, Jesus next, look at verses 29 to 31, is describing the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. If you have footnotes depending if you have a study Bible or chain references, you may notice that some of these quotes and phrases are actually lifted right out of the Hebrew Bible. These are coming from books like Daniel, Joel, Zechariah, Amos, Isaiah, and Zephaniah. And, Jesus, and these, this is language of judgment and doom against pagan nations that Jesus is lifting 
right out of Old Testament prophets, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus' favorite self-designation. Whenever He uses it, He always uses it in third person, but it's referring to Himself. That comes from Ezekiel. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Let me finish up by saying, in 70 AD, Emperor Titus came after his father, finished the cleanup job. The destruction was total. The temple was obliterated. Jerusalem was obliterated. Interestingly today, if you go to Rome, and if you go on the Via Sacra, which was the main road in Rome there, today, you will see what is called the Titus Arch. It's smaller than the Constantine Arch, but there's the Titus Arch right there built in honor of Titus, the general, that obliterated Jerusalem. You say, well, what, what, what is it? Well, it's very interesting. It was built about 10 years after the invasion under the emperor Domitian to celebrate what Titus had done. And if you go stand under that arch, there is a stone relief of Roman soldiers carrying away treasures from the Jewish temple just 10 years earlier. In fact, one soldier actually has a large menorah on his shoulder. And you can see Jewish treasures on Roman soldiers' arms and backs as they are being taken out of Jerusalem just 10 years earlier. Again, this arch was built around 80, 81 AD. The invasion was 70 AD. That's what's going on here as Jesus describes this. And what's sobering, as I told you, this language He's applying is language from the prophets. And who was it applied to originally? Remember what I said? It was applied to pagan nations. This is language that was applied to Babylon, to Edom. It was language of judgment. And what's so shocking is Jesus has just said, not only is the temple going to be destroyed, not only is Jerusalem going to be invaded and it's going to be a bloodbath, but God's doing it as judgment. He's, he's, he's quoting Hebrew Scriptures He's quoting phrases that were used of pagan nations in judgment, and he's applying them to God's people. This, this, this is shock preaching at its extreme. These, these disciples had to be reeling by this point. And then finally, Jesus gives a summons. He was a summons kind of guy when he preached. Verses 32 to 35, for this part of the sermon, he kind of wraps it up here, and he says, from the fig tree, learn this lesson as soon as its branches become tender, put puts out its leaves, you know summer's near. In other words, uh, get a clue, read the signs of the time. That's, that, that's his point. So also, when you see all these things, what things? All the devastation coming in just a few decades to Jerusalem, you know that He is near at the very gates, He being Jesus or the Messiah or God in judgment. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away. Another reminder right there, that last phrase, of the enduring, eternal nature of God's Word. All right. Lastly, look at verse 34. 
Notice this very carefully. I want you to notice two things. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place or have taken place. Okay, so the question inquiring minds want to know is what? What things? Everything he's been talking about, the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the bloodbath and the judgment of God, all of this coming, he says that the present generation is going to be alive to see it. Going to be alive to see it. And that's exactly what happened. A lot of these people would have still been alive in 70 AD when this all occurred. Now, I'm going to step back for a minute in professorial mode here and say I, I want to do something I don't do a lot of, and that is this. I want to talk about two very different views of what's going on in chapter 24. And I, I bring this up because there is a very strong divided opinion in the evangelical, Christian, conservative, Bible-believing world about what's going on in chapter 24, even among scholars. Now, there's a lot of nuances and sub-views. I'm not going to get into all that, but I'm going to give you the two predominant views. The reason I don't normally do something like this is because it can lead to uh, interpretive relativism if every Sunday the pastor's up going, okay, here's five views of this and six views of this and nine views of this and three views of that. You can get to the point where you're like, who knows anything for certain? Well, I think we know most. And again, the major themes here are very certain. But I do want to bring this to your attention because it impacts so significantly how you read what's going on here. So here's the two views. I'm just calling them creatively, view one and view two. <laughs> okay? View number one. View number one, held by lots of good Bible-believing evangelicals and scholars, is that everything being described in chapter 24 is already fulfilled. It's done. As you read Matthew 24, it's all in the past. R.C. Sproul held this view. Becky and I went to a conference several years ago where the whole conference was devoted to this. It's called the preterist view, or some people call it a partial preterist view, but preterist is Latin for past, that which has gone by. It's done, finished. N.T. Wright, very prolific New Testament scholar, all kinds of folks would say, everything you're reading here, it's all done. It's all been fulfilled. It was all fulfilled when Rome came in, destroyed the whole place, obliterated, initiated this bloodbath, marched off with the temple treasures to Rome. That was it. Done. That's the preterist view. View number two is that this chapter is describing both the coming Roman invasion, which quite honestly a lot of Bible-believing Christians miss and think the whole thing's only about the future, and I think that's a mistake. I think it's very clear from, especially Luke, a big chunk of this is about 70 AD and what happened. That's very clear. But view number two is not only is the Roman invasion being described here, but there's also hints that grow stronger as you move through the Olivet Discourse that something else is being pointed to that's going to take place that's even more significant. And for lack of a better phrase, call this the futurist view. So those are the two. Now, there's, there's obviously nuances of each of these, and I'm not going to go into all that, but you, those are two, that's a continental divide how you view this. If all of this is fulfilled, you're obviously going to read this and apply it differently than if a big chunk was fulfilled, but a big chunk is still futures. Does that make sense? So I think the second option is the right one. I'm a futurist. 
And I think it makes the most sense of the wording here. It explains, I think, as you go through Matthew 24, why there's clear language about both an imminent Roman invasion, but then you start seeing all these hints showing up about end-time events. Like, look at verse 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Well, this is very similar language to how Paul describes the second coming in a very clear passage about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I, I could give some other examples, but there's lots of hints that start showing up so that someone like D.A. Carson, if you know the name D.A. Carson, if there was a Mount Rushmore of New Testament scholars, you know, built in our generation, D.A. would be up on the, on the mountain there. He's, and he said, he, here's what he says about both the imminent Roman invasion and yet a future aspect here. He said, these two events, meaning Roman invasion, second coming of Christ in the future. These two events seem to be so tightly intertwined in this chapter that it's impossible to separate them. You think of tightly braided rope. It's, they're so tightly intertwined. And the bottom line, I think, is that Jesus is using the coming destruction, Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and God's judgment, as He looks ahead to an even greater time of judgment in human history when there will be a tribulation and an antichrist and a second coming and a final judgment. This is actually not uncommon, by the way, in biblical prophecy to have a near fulfillment historically. This goes on all the time in the Old Testament, where you had a prophet say something that applied to a very near situation. But then there's threads that look to the future of something even greater or more significant in the distant future, perhaps uh, 50, 100, or 500 years in the, in the future, this near and yet distant aspect of biblical prophecy. And let me, let me, let me bring something, this is interesting, as I was going through all kinds of different resources this week, I found two committed preterists, both, both R.C. Sproul and N.T. Wright, both very good scholars, both committed to the fact that all of Matthew 24 is past and done and fulfilled, both admitted that, well, maybe some of the language is pointing to events beyond 70 AD. Thought, well, that's interesting. Was that a slip of the pen or what? I mean, N.T. Wright, who is probably the most prolific New Testament scholar alive today, is an Anglican bishop, conservative Anglican bishop in England, quote, it is possible, not when, it, when, it, you gotta, when a scholar says, it's possible, <laughs> that's, that's very strong language for a scholar. It is possible that Matthew is seeing the devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as an eschatological dress rehearsal, how's that, for a yet-to-come fulfillment. Translation, Okay, maybe some of what's going on in Matthew 24 is really pointing to the distant future. Only a scholar would come up with something like eschatological dress rehearsal, who talks like that. But nonetheless, he's admitting, eh, okay, maybe some of this does. And R.C. Sproul did the same thing in his commentary on Matthew. And I hadn't known that till this week when I was digging around in it. That leads us to the second main theme here, and that's the coming of the Son of Man. So now we're in verses 36 all the way to chapter 25, verse 30. And to do, before, before I dive into that, let me summarize, because we are, someone said in the first service, after the first service this morning to me, wow, that's like a fire hose. I, I know that. So let me back up. Let me summarize for a minute where we're at. 
the disciples have asked two questions, right? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And when are you coming? When's the coming of the Son of Man? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Basically, two questions. Jesus has answered the first one. The disciples' second question shows up in the last part of verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And again, these events probably were all connected in the disciples' minds. Futurists believe that, yeah, a lot of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 AD, but there's greater things being pointed to. And futurists, I'm one, believes that what's going on here is that Jesus is slowly and gradually combining the events of 70 AD and the second coming of Christ in His language, and he's, you see it more and more as you progress through chapter 24. Now, the problem, quite honestly, for a futurist like myself, well, is there like one verse that says, okay, now we're talking about the future? <laughs> and you don't get that in biblical prophecy. That's not the way it generally works. Usually it's slow, it's gradual, and pretty soon it's, all tw- it's intertwined together. Hence, Carson saying these two events are so tightly intertwined, it's impossible to separate them. But you start seeing hints And then the hints get bigger, that something greater is being alluded to and pointed to than just what happened in 70 AD. And that's why I chose to divide the text at verse 36, because virtually everyone in the futurist camp, and even some in the preterist camp, admit that by verse 36, we may well be, and we probably are, in the last days, in the future days. So both the near and the far. So look at, I'm going to read verse 36 and then make a couple comments. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father. Now contrast that with verse 34, contrast that with verse 34 when he says these things will happen when? In this generation. So he's saying all that he just described before verse 34, that's going to take place in only a few years. Now he's saying, oh, now when it comes to the coming of the Son of Man, nobody knows that timing. So we, we have two different events, and even, ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, boys and girls, it was interesting, even R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Matthew, page 658 this week, said, quote, Jesus was speaking about the events of 70 A.D. through verse 35, but then he began to teach about his ultimate coming in verse 35 and following. But, whoa! Now, we know Brother R.C. is now in heaven with Jesus, and I'm wondering if they had a conversation about page 658, because I think right there, R.C. Sproul got it directly correct. Dr. Charles Quarrel, Quarles teaches at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, said something interesting. He said, when you look at the first two Greek words in verse 36, I'm not going to give them to you, but when you look at the first two Greek words there, it marks a clear shift in the chapter in the Greek wording. In other words, he said Jesus is announcing a new topic, or he's shifting to a new focus. Now about, but about, now concerning. And that's what he's now talking about, and he's now going to be talking about the timing of the coming of the Son of Man. And unlike these things in verse 34 that are all going to take place in a few decades, this next subject Nobody knows the timing of. This is a different event. Let me read verses 36 to verse 41. But concerning, or now concerning, that day 
an hour. No one knows. Not even the angels nor the Son, but the Father only. And that phrase, not even the Son knows, has bothered a lot of Christians over the years. And there's even some early Bible manuscripts that leave out that phrase because it bothered some scribes so much that Jesus was saying there's something he doesn't even know in his human nature. But it seems to be in the text, in the original text. For as there were in the days of Noah, so will be coming in the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. This is kind of how it's going to be. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then if you know your Bible, some of you know these verses very well. Two men will be in a field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake. So if you're here this morning, you're falling asleep. Jesus is saying, stay awake. Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. BTW, by the way. Verses 38 to 41 are often misunderstood. Many believe that those left behind are in deep trouble and under judgment. In fact, there's a whole series called Left Behind. You don't want to be left behind. The context here is the opposite, quite honestly. Noah, the example here Jesus gives, he gives the example of Noah and the women grinding at the mill. The ones left behind are actually the ones who are in good shape and saved, and the ones taken in both Noah and the woman two women grinding, and the ones taken were taken in judgment. You don't want to be taken. You actually want to be left behind according to the original context here. Bottom line, from verse 36 on, I think it's eminently clear that Jesus is now talking about His return in power and glory. Talk about hope. That is the hope and has been the hope of the church. There's actually more words about the second coming of Christ than His first coming in the Bible. And interesting, the Bible speaks of His second coming constantly. It's in the Apostles' Creed. We talk, it talks about he, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Every time we take communion, we're taking it until He comes again. And then to emphasize, you better be ready, He tells four stories in rapid succession, starting in verse 42, all the way to chapter 25, verse 31. Four stories about being ready. Thief in the night, the good and wicked servant, the ten virgins, and the bags of gold. And the point of all four is basically the same. Be alert, read the signs, be ready. Don't be caught. All right, lastly, the final judgment. That's the last me mega theme here. Verses 31, chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. In the last part of the sermon, Jesus goes on to describe a day when God will judge all mankind. And this will occur after the second coming. So the events seem to be Great tribulation, then second coming, and then final judgment. Look at verses 31 through verse 33. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. And by the way, nobody doubts now we're in the future. So that, that's why there's, there's near and far weaved all the way through the Olivet Discourse. Son of Man's going to come in His glory, all His angels with Him, and He sits on His throne before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If you see uh, flocks, by the way, of sheep in Israel, goats are commonly intermingled with sheep. They just, it's very common. So He was using something very familiar to the people. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. I don't know why the goats got designated as the bad guys and the sheep the good guys, but because sheep are often 
just regarded as stupid and dumb in the Bible, but here, maybe that's why, maybe that's the saved or regarded that way. He will place the sheep on his right, goats on the left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what he says to those who are saved. And then if you go down to verses 41, 43, he's going to talk to the unsaved. Now, notice the criteria, by the way, when he talks to those who are saved. It goes on uh, in verses 35. He said, this is how you know who the saved were. He said, I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked you clothed me. I was sick and you visited. I was in prison and you came to me. Now starting in verse 41, he's going to talk to those on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, into eternal fire. Nobody preached about hell with more graphic language than Jesus. Depart from me, I'm going to tell him into fire. You are cursed, and the fire, he says, is prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me naked, and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they're going to ask when, and he's going to say, because you didn't do it to the least of these. And then verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I just want to ask a question right here. According to these verses, it looks like the criteria for inheriting eternal life is doing good deeds to the poor and needy. Is that what Jesus, is he saying, this is how you're saved? And the answer is no. What Jesus is doing in these verses by talking about you didn't minister to the poor and needy or you did minister to the poor and needy, he's saying, look it, if you don't love the poor and the hungry and the homeless and the needy, then it's evidence you don't love me. That's what he's saying. He's not saying we're saved by doing good works for the poor. There's a lot of people who do good works for the poor who don't know Christ. He's saying that kindness to the poor and needy show that we're saved. This has deep roots in the prophets. It has deep roots in Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, we read this, stop bringing your meaningless offerings. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will not answer you. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. Jesus is just borrowing from the prophets when he's saying that this is, this is the kind of evidence that someone knows the living God. Interesting, one of our most prominent Christian sociologists of our day, Rodney Stark, I love, I love his writings, he's written a lot. He says, one of the, one of the secrets <coughs> of the explosive growth of the early church was the compassion of the early Christians towards the poor and the needy, especially during times of tragedy and plague. And instead of running and hiding during times of plagues and pandemics, the Christians were the ones that were on the front lines serving and often getting sick themselves and dying. But that was one of the secrets why the early church exploded as pagans watched that early church take care of the sick and the poor and the needy. Evangelism exploded and the gospel exploded. All right, our summons this morning, got to land the plane. We've looked at a lot of moving parts here, but the meta-narrative is very clear. Destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, coming of the Son of Man, and the final judgment. How could this not but beg out for a summons that says this? Who 
will be prepared to face God. I want to put a picture up on the screen, tell you a story as I close the service. This is a picture taken from 2008, and it's about Becky's grandfather. And it has to do with the conclusion this morning. Do you know Christ? And if you do know Christ and have repented and trusted Him as Savior, and there's evidence in your life of hunger and thirst for righteousness and growing and holiness, when's the last time you shared the gospel? This photograph was taken in the summer of 2008. Becky's folks and her grandparents all lived in the Black Hills, so we were out there every year. This particular week we happened to be out there. It was not our normal time to visit. This happened to be in June, and we had never really gone out there in June. We happened to for a number of reasons. He died three days later. He was 97 years old. He'd been a widower for about 11 years. He was lonely. He loved Christ. I got to know him until I was in my uh, late 40s, and it was a great-grandfather, and he, he loved Jesus. He loved Christ. He loved the Lord. Now, this is her grandfather, not a great-grandfather. It's my kid's great-grandfather, but he loved the Lord, and what, here's what happened. We're out there. Everything's going fine. The night before we left, he starts wheezing, and so Becky's folks took him into the ER at 9 o'clock the night before we left. We're heading back to Michigan. And the next morning, he's in the hospital, and he's sitting up, doing fine, chit-chatting with the nurses. Everything's going well. Tuesday morning, just two days after we left, or one day after we left, actually, uh, he's sitting up, and a therapist comes in and asks, Harvey, how you doing? And his answer was, I'm doing fine. I'm just waiting for the call. And he shared a little bit. She left, came back 30 minutes later, and he was dead just sitting there peacefully. He'd been waiting for the call. Young people, kids, adults, it is highly likely one year from today, some of us will be dead. The question is, are you waiting for the call? Are you ready to meet God? Do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? Jesus has told us what's going to happen it's our choice whether to believe it or not. The evidence is overwhelming. He was the Son of God, and He knew exactly what He's talking about, and He's Lord of history. And so I would plead with you today, if you don't know Christ, if you're not sure if you know Christ, make this the day you repent and believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this sermon. It's complex. Forgive me if there's details that I didn't get quite right, but the meta-themes are very clear. There is going to be a day when the Son of Man comes. There's going to be a day when the elect are gathered. There's going to be a day of judgment. And there's going to be a day of salvation. And I pray here for those who aren't sure where they are with Christ, that you would open their eyes and that they would make sure they are sheep. And they will not be with that group that is sent off into eternal fire and judgment. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our faith community, and in other Bible-believing churches in our area. May you continue that great work. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.